I'm happy to grow slowly, you know. I just think there's so many examples of great Australian businesses that have really grown such a strong business and it hasn't been fast. You know, you guys have spoken to Joe Horgan from Mecca, who I really admire. You know, there's other businesses like Carmen's Muesli and those sort of businesses that are such great businesses. And that's like a 10 plus year journey for those businesses. And I just think that's where you really have longevity when you're happy to just go slow and not be pushed to grow too fast. And I must say that is why I don't seek out investment. Hey, welcome to the Lady Brains podcast. We're your hosts, Caitlin Judd and Anna McKenzie, co-founders of Lady Brains, a digital and IRL club for female founders and founders to be. We're chasing down the most successful female entrepreneurs from around the globe, not only to hear their life story, but to extract their knowledge and world-class insights. If you're curious and ambitious, then Lady Brain, you are in the right place. Get ready for some hard-hitting truths, a dose of inspo and learnings you can apply right away. Strap in. Back in 2008, Lucy Fagans established one of Australia's OG blogs, The Design Files. Within just 18 months, she managed to grow the content platform to become the most popular design blog in the country. With a core focus on featuring real homes and architecture, a passion for creating original, high-quality content, and a love of storytelling, The Design Files has become the go-to destination to feast your eyes on the most swoon-worthy of homes. We covered a lot of ground in this chat, including how to generate content that's both creative and commercial, how to build a well-oiled content machine and find diverse ways of monetizing it, and why Lucy believes that not being the expert in the design space has actually led to her success, plus so much more. We began by asking Lucy what was missing from her life and from the marketplace at the time that inspired her to start the Design Files blog. We want to kind of, we want to go back to the early days and, you know, TDF started out as a blog. You were doing that in your spare time while you were working as a freelance stylist and set dresser, I believe. Yes. We'd love to know, like, what inspired you to start TDF? And I guess what was missing from your life that I suppose inspired you to start it, but also what was missing in the market that you believed it just didn't exist? Yeah, such a good question. And man, like you really like have to cast your mind back so long ago because I started the site in 2008, which honestly just feels like such a lifetime ago now. And and the media landscape was such a different place back then. Uh, You know, there was no social media really for one thing, which has changed the media so much. Uh, So I guess, you know, back then starting a blog was a pretty nerdy thing. I was reading a lot of (laughs) blogs. I was passionate about uh, design and interiors and I was really reading a lot of international content because there really wasn't much in Australia that covered uh, that sort of stuff in that sort of indie way that I was sort of interested in. And so I was reading international blogs and I think they were just a little bit ahead of Australia and and there wasn't really a voice in Australia that was that indie design sort of personal voice uh, in the space. So, uh, yeah, I just really started it as a very personal side project. I never planned for it to be a business. I certainly didn't plan to have other voices on the side and it was back in the day when blogs were one person's voice and one person's point of view. So, you know, that's, I guess I started because I felt there was a gap that uh, in the local market but uh, yeah, certainly I didn't really have grand visions for it and I couldn't, I, I didn't at all imagine it would ever be what it is now, which is a business with multiple voices and, you know, contributors from across Australia. So yeah, I think it, it I'd love to say it was more strategic, but in the early days, it really was just a bit of a, um, a passion project. And how did you grow your audience in the early days? I mean, it was before the days of social media and um, as you said, it was a bit of a side project that was, you know, for your own, I guess, a creative outlet for yourself. How did you grow in the early days? It's hard, isn't it, to imagine how anyone does anything without social media. How the F the OG blog? Like you had to go and type in the URL, like you know, and save it to your bookmarks. That that was how you found your blogs back then. I know. Well, you know, there was a whole life. Like there was, there was a whole lot of stuff going on for many years before social media came along. So I guess, um, 
you know, back then, to be honest, the blog community almost was a precursor to what Instagram probably feels like now. It was much smaller, much more niche and nerdy. It didn't engage everyone in the way that social media does, but it did have similarities in that there was a real community amongst bloggers. Bloggers would often share each other's blogs amongst their own little communities in the same way that Instagram influencers do now. And so it was on a way smaller scale, but there was still a sense of community and connection. And I guess what what is a bit different from then compared to now is that there was a lot more dialogue, meaning you would post stuff, people would often comment. There was a lot of commenting, a lot of, um, you know, back and forth. Whereas now, I guess my blog is just more of a monologue, as in we put the content out there (laughs) and people consume it. And the conversation really happens on social media, but it doesn't really happen on the platform. So back then it was a little more, um, there was a bit more of a community, I guess, vibe embedded into the website or the blog itself, which which has definitely changed over time. But yeah, in terms of growing an audience back then, it was so organic and very... What can I say? I didn't plan to grow it. I really didn't have goals and targets. And and you know what's nice about that that pre social media time is that you don't really know how many people are reading anything. That you, mm, you know, yeah. and now you do because you can see everyone's numbers and everyone's sort of got this stamp on them for how many followers they have. And back then, I think uh, you could grow quite slowly and in your own time. And there was no one really overly worried about that number of how many followers you had. So I, I grew up really um, slowly over a couple of years and um, never really worried about how many people were following in the early days. I love that because it can be kind of um, a numbers game. A numbers game, but also kind of this sort of rat race and this yeah. pressure to always, you know, drive engagement, drive followers, all of that sort of stuff. And sometimes that can take away, I think, from the integrity of the content that people and brands put out. Um, Definitely. So, yeah. yeah. Did you struggle with that transition from, you know, having it just be your creative outlet to then really understanding that, hey, I, I need to have the eyeballs on this content and, and did you start to chase those numbers or has that been a bit of a tricky balance? Yeah, look, to be honest, yes. Now we do look at the numbers very much for every story, how many people read it, how long were they on the site for, what type of stories mm. performing, what isn't. And I have to say, I don't love it. Uh, I don't love doing that. I feel like it pushes your content in certain directions that you might not, um, that might not align with your values. So, you know, there are stories we will always run that do not get the big numbers, you know, and certainly things like we have our own internal targets around diversity in terms of um, showcasing emerging talent and designers that no one knows yet. And those stories don't get the traction that a big name person does, that a really fancy house does. But, you know, I just feel that it's it's not in line with our vision and, and it's actually not that rewarding to just showcase really established stuff all the time and not uncover the next emerging thing and, and, and look at, I guess, lesser known voices. So it's a really fine balance. We, we look at the numbers and we try and uh, create content that, of course, will perform for us and bring eyeballs and we need eyeballs mm-hmm. to remain relevant. But uh, I, I think we take it with a grain of salt. And I must say, I do miss the days when we were much less um, focused on on that. Yeah, it's interesting. I think we speak a lot about this balance between creative and commercial and sometimes, you know, the creative ideas that um, are so fundamental to the brand don't necessarily, you know, they're not necess- creating that content is not necessarily a good commercial decision, but sometimes it's important to do it anyway. And then yeah. vice versa, sometimes you get pushed into making decisions that are commercial, but that don't really fulfill our sense of creativity. So we speak about this a lot. So it's it's interesting to hear that you've sort of had the same challenges. Yeah, well, I think one of the key things is that people don't want usually what they haven't seen before. So, you know, mm. any content you're making, whether you're an Instagram mm. creator, whether you're just a brand that has content channels as a marketing sort of strategy, people are never going to immediately respond to something brand new that they really haven't seen yet. They sort of need to understand it, take some time. It, it asks the viewer to, I guess, be a little bit more engaged and do a little bit more work to sort of get their head around a new channel or a new piece of content, a new type of content, you know. And I think if you're innovating, it's always going to be 
a bit of a slower, I guess, response rate from your audience, but otherwise you're just making the same stuff people have always seen before and you probably look similar to other brands as well. So I don't know, I'm, I'm sort of all about trying to keep that balance and making sure we do have the stuff we know mm. will always rate, but that there's always a, a component of stuff that people haven't seen before that's maybe new or different. And um, and that goes for the type of content you're creating as much as the sort of subject matter that you're covering. For us, we content is our number one mm-hmm. output. You know, we're not a brand that has content on the side. That's just all we are. So, you know, yeah. if we can't get that right, then we're really not... Um, you know, it's just not fulfilling for us either creatively. So, yeah, we, we do need to sort of uh, keep a check on that sort of endless race for numbers, I think, because yeah. it's not mm-hmm. the only measure of of success so, uh, yeah. f- for us anyway. So you did say that. You said you created a lot of content and you do. You're constantly putting out... Oh, I mean, some incredible, incredible work. You know, you produce the shoots, you write articles, you coordinate and host events, the awards. Um, and then obviously you have to turn all of that content out across various social media channels. It's a big job. There's a lot going on. Can you talk us through your creative process and what it's like coming up with those new ideas? Yeah, I must admit, I guess these days I have a team that do so much of the creative ideation with me. So it's not all just down to me, but, uh, I mean, I guess we have core pillars. That's sort of our framework for what we're, you know, what sort of content we're looking for. Uh, and of course the houses and the interiors are a massive part of, uh, the design files and that's what, uh, rates most highly usually. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, you know, for 12 years, I've just always been looking for nice houses. Basically. <laughs> so, yeah. It's like, I'm always like looking in the background and people will zoom meetings. No, not really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah can you take me on a quick tour? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, there's just an underlying thing when you're a content machine uh, to uh, always be on the lookout for the next story and, and for interesting sort of um, spaces and people. But, uh, you know, we'll have editorial meetings once a week uh, with um, our team and we're always looking for, you know, new creatives, new artists, new makers, uh, cool spaces. I guess that to, that to us is just sort of maintenance. It's I don't really mm. think of it as a creative process. The, the creative side is when we're planning a, a whole new column or a whole new direction or like, you know, when we launched our podcast or when we are launching a video series or something like that, that I guess pushes out into new territory. Again, it's just constant, you know, I guess I've been doing this for so long. I don't switch off. I'm sure you guys are the same when you yeah. run your own business and when it's a small creative uh, business, I don't sort of sit down and go, right, it's my idea generating time now. You know, it's sort of an endless thing and you're always responding to what else is out there, other people are doing and and how you can, you know, do things in new ways. So I must say I can't really answer their questions succinctly because (laughs) I don't feel like I have a creative process that is finite, you know. It is more of an ongoing thing and, um, and it's very collaborative as well. And what about the kind of operational process behind your content machine? Because I think the Design Files puts out content that is not only high quality, but you put out a of like high quantity. Yep. You have quantity and quality. And in order to do that, you have to have this, as you said, machine, all the cogs turning and operating seamlessly. And, you know, that can be really tricky. How do you manage that? Yeah, it's taken a while to refine. So I have a team of six people at the moment, plus myself, and our writing team is essentially three people, uh, although one of those people is part-time. So basically I've got, uh, you know, this small team that, that I guess take care of 90% of the writing on our website. We, we do have contributors in other states and we need that to make sure that we have national sort of stories coming in. But, uh, for me, I've sort of figured out that having people on t- on team, on staff who are, I guess, really loyal to the design files and can get a lot mm. done uh, in an efficient way. For me, that's all about having team that are on staff that are passionate about the design files and sort of bring their best ideas to the design files. And it's a lot of work as well to manage a huge group of freelancers uh, mm, and, yeah. and contractors. So I really like sort of having my team close um, and uh, enables us to get a lot done. So we have this three-person writing team that write most of the stories and we have uh, a two-person design team that uh, take care of 
photo sourcing, photo layouts, the photos being formatted and uh, created for every possible channel um, and graphics as well for things like videos and events and other things. So, um, you know, we're just very connected and it's, and it's super efficient. Like all day, every day, we're pinging ideas back and forth, back and forth. And we're, have you done this? Have you done that? And we, we do have systems. We use, you know, uh, spreadsheets with co- our content plan for each week. We yeah. plan about three to four weeks of content in advance. We're publishing mm-hmm. about three stories a day. That's all sort of, there's all sorts of lists and spreadsheets that, that sort of help us stay organized. But I think really it's about having a team that are so tight knit that we are really functioning super efficiently back and forth, back and forth um, all day. Uh, and that enables us to uh, get a lot done and also just deal with this sort of endless deadline. Like we've got three deadlines yeah. a day that we're just publishing deadlines. Um, and so, yeah, yeah I, yeah, I don't know. If, again, it doesn't sound very organised. We are quite organised. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm sure you are. You have to be if you're pushing yeah. out that much content, for sure. Yeah, I don't know. I just think it's also about the team's motivation and you need a team that are mm. excited and stuff mm. as well because that really plays into being able to deliver good quality stuff so consistently. Um, yeah, I read that book uh, last year, The Culture Code. Do you know that? It's about like workplace no. culture. And I was so interested to read that book because I'm pretty obsessed with workplace culture and yeah. I like to think we've got a pretty good culture at Design Files. Uh, but one of the things that came out of that book was that teams that uh, – sit together in an office all day uh, in close proximity and they even measured sort of the distance between people's desks and that sort of thing and they found that teams that are actually in a very uh, open plan, close workplace um, are so much more efficient and sort of I guess you you start functioning like a little um, family unit where you can almost uh, read each other's minds a little bit. You sort of know what people are um, thinking even if you haven't had a proper sit down meeting about it because you're just so attuned to one another because you're sitting in close proximity and bouncing ideas around all day. And I, that was a light bulb moment for me because I was like, oh, that's why we get so much done because we are sitting here all day, usually, mm-hmm. not at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and it really enables us to, I guess, be on the same wavelength and it eliminates the need for a million systems because it's just so mm. efficient operating as this little quite um, close and nimble unit. Yeah. And so how has that changed during COVID with, you know, everyone working remotely? Mm-hmm. Has that been a challenge for you? Yeah, look, it really has. I think um, the main thing that we have struggled with is uh, I think it's the lack of um, uh, interruptions in the day and sort of um, happy accidents and things that happen that are unplanned uh, because, you know, we... I just feel like we're all doing our work and our work's getting done mm. and the only thing you have to do all day is your work. <laughs> but you're not having those fun chats, you know, in the office um, w- which can often generate really great creative ideas. You're yeah. not sort of having, um, yeah, unexpected moments and so, and also we're not doing shoots and things like that. So all those sort of things we do that really inject um creativity into our day and and more sort of unexpected things into our day are gone. So my challenge and our team's challenge is just sort of breaking the monotony of literally sitting down all day and just writing your work and feeling a bit like a a writing machine uh, without the sort of uh, relief of having those, those, those things that break up your day. So I'm really, I'm really, uh, I think we're okay, but, and certainly our output has been pretty good. We've been able to manage the same output and, and hopefully the same quality of content. Mm. But I do worry a bit about um, people's um, mood and, and if they're feeling as mm. fulfilled. And um, mm. yeah, if, I, I do sort of feel like we're doing the best we can, but um, this time has really uh, reminded me how important it is to have that physical connection with your team as well. Do you have any tips for anyone that might be managing a nimble team that is, you know, spread around a country or the world? Like, especially right now when everyone's moods have definitely shifted. Do you have any good advice on how to kind of, you know, break up, as you said, break up the moments during the day and um, just inject some positivity? I mean, when we first started, so I kind of, I've lost track of how long we've been in lockdown now in Melbourne. Uh, so we're oh, around, months. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yes, we're we're all in Melbourne. We're in Melbourne just too. Uh, just so you all know, we, we have it's been how many days? Been oh, many days, too many. Many days. Yeah, <laughs> many months. I don't, yeah, I think when we first started. So when lockdown first started, it wasn't even that bad at the start. I don't know when it was March, April. Yeah, and uh, March, back then yeah. we were really proactive, like we'll be fine. We're going to have a meeting every morning. So every morning Mm. um, we would all get on to Zoom and, um, you know, have a face-to-face chat. And uh, we were really sort of proactive about, you know, keeping connected. Mm. And we did that for a long time and we still do chat all throughout the day, but I think we have lost a bit of motivation to to continue being so proactive on it because we're not in defensive mode anymore about let's not let you know, negative, you know, feelings come in. Now we're sort of on, I do think we're on a bit of a treadmill now where it's just like, just get through it, just get through it. And so uh, I must admit, I think in the last sort of six weeks, we've been a little bit, I do think we've, probably um, lost a bit of motivation to be proactive about our mindfulness, about our happiness as a team. And I need to sort of um, work on that, but it's really hard. I I do think it it is about remaining connected and continuing those face-to-face chats Um, and also picking up the phone. Like there's such a tendency to Mm. just email and Slack message people, but not to actually talk anymore in a sort of unstructured way. So, you know, I think um, chatting with your team is fine as well and and you should do that as well. Uh, But yeah, I just... I don't know. I I I wish I had better advice um, mm. for that. It's it's definitely taking a bit of a toll <laughs> mm. at the moment. Mm. Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah. I think it's taken a toll on so many teams. It's I mean, it's been hard for us. Yeah. We, we've yeah. spoken to so many people in our community that um, are struggling to not only stay positive, but um, to help others in their team to kind of you know, as you say, stay inspired and. Um, Feel like they're putting out their best work, so yeah. yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's a tricky one. But yeah. I think I think what you said there was something that you said there was just not trying to push it away, like letting those feel, like feeling the feels. Yeah, um, can sometimes be the best approach. Not feeling like you have to be always on and mm. um, push the negativity away because it's just that's you know not realistic. It's impossible. So yeah, and I yeah. think you know our team is very close anyway. We're an all female mm. team. We're all we were all really good pals before this thing happened. And I think yeah. having a team that you trust, that you're close with, that you can say if you're just feeling crap in your mood on any given day and um, you need a bit of time away from the computer or whatever, I think, you know, if you have that closeness and that trust within mm. the team, it certainly um, does go a long way as well. And what about the other impacts of COVID on your business? I mean, you know, it's been interesting for us to see how brands have um, pulled back in terms of sponsorship dollars and advertising dollars because of COVID. I mean, it's, it's that's definitely had an impact on our business. And I'm curious, you know, have you sort of seen a similar thing and how have you navigated the other challenges that have come with COVID on your business? Yeah, well, absolutely agree. And I think we're in a similar boat there. We probably um, have a similar sort of business model in some ways in terms of really needing those um, sponsorship dollars to support our business. Um, so in March, when everything really started, um, to, uh, get a little crazy, I was totally terrified, uh, because Mm. it, at that point there was no talk of what any government stimulus or job keeper or anything like that yet. And, uh, I was looking at our, um, runway, which is not a word I'd ever used before this year (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) and going, okay, this is because like you, we had a number of big clients that had um, activity planned with us so that, you know, we do um, events with the brands and that's a decent chunk of our income. Even brands advertising on our site um, was all pulled back because if people's showrooms are closed, then they don't want to advertise and they're not going to be having that sale or that event that they were previously promoting. So yeah, so in March, probably 70% or 75% of our um, uh, sort of sponsorship, committed sponsorship, um, all got either cancelled or sort of indefinitely postponed. And so I was really scared. So from a financial point of view, my number one priority was that this doesn't affect my staff and I didn't want to lose any staff. So I just sort of did some crazy spreadsheeting and really had to figure out how long we could last, um, at the, at, you know, with that reduction in income. And we are quite nimble and I did have a little bit of cash in the bank. So I felt fine for about 
uh, I was looking okay for maybe five, five months. But it was still super scary and, and I did have, I, I was looking at, okay, could we maybe have some people go part-time for a bit temporarily and all that sort of thing. And I, I was really, really stressed about it because I'm a sole business owner. I don't have any business partners. I don't have any backers. We're just a cash positive business. So definitely that was probably the most stressful time I've ever had to face as a business owner. And my number one concern was um, making sure that I didn't have to let any staff go. But then as soon as the uh, government stimulus started to come in, JobKeeper has been an absolute lifesaver for our business and it has been paying, you know, around two thirds of our wage bill for the last six months um, whilst we've navigated this downturn. So, you know, I never thought I'd be thanking the government for anything, but that's actually, that's actually been really good. (laughs) So that's actually been really, really great. And certainly it's a better um, outcome than, you know, many other countries in the world have been able to um, Mm. Mm. offer small business. So that's been great. So now I sort of feel fine. And now we are seeing our clients and advertisers sort of coming back. And I think Mm. it's because the general mood is well, this is sort of the new normal and we still need to operate within these parameters. Mm. So we're, I hope you are too, seeing a little bit more cautious mm. optimism coming back, um, which is mm. great. But I do think it'll be a slightly slow climb back to where we were. Uh, but for me, you know, our business is small um, and nimble and I think I'm probably better placed than some Mm. bigger businesses with bigger overheads um, to, mm. to get through it. But it's forced us to kind of look at the business and go, well, what else can we do? Yeah, What's yeah. in our control, our control commercially speaking? Mm. Um, I mean, obviously you can continue to build the audience, but, you know, you need to make money to survive. Has it forced you to look at your business and go, how else can I make money? What else can I be doing in order to get through this time and, and you know, not have to look at letting go of staff? Yeah, I mean, we definitely have been looking at other ways to diversify our income streams. I mean, we're we're sort of in the fortunate position that we already had quite a diverse way of bringing in income. And that's been forced upon us because, you know, we're essentially a publisher and publishing is a really challenging model that and I've been aware for some time that of the need to diversify. So um, ironically, that's why we were doing events mm, <laughs> and things. Yeah, right. um, <laughs> so, you know, we, our income over the last few years has sort of been um, divided between online staff, events, some ambassadorship staff that I would do, uh, you know, social media staff with brands. And there's always been a sort of ver- variety of of different ways we earn an income. But yeah, certainly we've had to um, fill some gaps f- of things that we just can't deliver. And, and the annoying thing at the moment is a massive um, part of our, or the biggest part of um, mm. our income is generating content for brands, which usually involves photo shoots and video shoots and things like that. Yeah. yeah. And of course we haven't been able to do that in for quite some time. And um, we've got clients interstate that honestly, they don't quite get it. Like they'll be like, oh, you're in Melbourne, but can't you still just do a two person photo shoot? And we're like, I'm no. really sorry, but we can't leave our houses. So um, it's hard to uh, manage those expectations when you've got clients that aren't in the thick of it, like we are down here in Melbourne. Oh, sure, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But uh, we've done our best to sort of pivot within the sort of realm of of the sort of things that we were delivering anyway. Yeah, it's been, it's been very challenging for all content businesses, I think, in that sense. And, you know, like in one sense it's lucky because, you know, you can continue to produce high-quality content to a degree. You can write, you mm. can podcast, but, you know, the um, the production of video and photo content is... Next to impossible Next in to impossible. That's yeah. hard. And also what you said before, like you don't make money just from generating content. That's no. sort of the funny thing that people, yeah. you know, people assume that you... As, an, as a publisher that you're sort of fine if you can, because you live on the internet. But, um, yeah, we don't live 100% on the internet. We need to be in the world covering news and things that, um, yeah, for, for our channel. And, um, and also we don't, we can't make a living if all our content is just editorial. We just can't. Like we need to do the branded stuff to actually pay for everything we do. shoot and visit homes and do all that in Melbourne, but has it been easier for you interstate? Have you had to really dial up interstate kind of contractors to 
Yeah, do your branded shoots, go to the homes, yes. right, all of that. How And it, how's that working? Yeah, we have. So we have um, definitely um, pushed and lent on our inter- interstate mm. contributors to do more and that has been really great. That they're, And also regional, so, the, you know, there's um, definitely a few mm. spots in Victoria that are still um, able to shoot. So we've been doing a bit of stuff um, outside of Melbourne um, remotely. So, yeah, we have, we're really lucky. And in a way, that might be one of the good things actually that comes out of this time for us is that we have, and I have a tendency to be a little bit control freaky about having to be <laughs> on every shoot <laughs> and having to do everything with a lot of oversight um, from me and my close team. But, you know, this has taught us, well, you know, we're just going to have to let that those Sydney people just do that shoot for us and hope that, you know, with a lot of briefing and a lot of a few meetings that it's going to be fine. And it always is fine. So I think it's probably yeah. going to be a good outcome to come out of this time with some really strong contributors that will um, improve our output more generally. So that's actually probably, that'll be a, a silver lining. Yeah. You raise an interesting point there, like um, having to kind of give up that control and trust, put the trust into other people. Um, and it's kind of a bit of a segue into what I wanted to talk about, which is brand. You know, you've built such a strong, incredible brand and, you know, you're definitely the face of this brand. But I feel like, you know, over the years, you've kind of dipped in and out a little bit, you know, TDF's kind of stood at the top and then, you know, you have been quite present, especially when, you know, you're running those big events. Can you talk me through um, the relationship between you as a brand and TDF as a brand? And have you approached that in a strategic way or has it kind of just evolved and, you know, you figured it out as you've gone along? That is such a good question. I've never been asked that before, actually. Yeah, look, as you're probably starting to gather, there's not a whole lot of strategy going on at the design files. <laughs> it's a very gut feel sort of decision making environment. <laughs> um, so good. But uh, yeah, look, I'm very conscious of the design files brand. Um, mm. That's always been my priority. So that's why, you know, we're super selective about the sort of partnerships we do. There's a lot of stuff we say no to. Um, and not in a judgmental way, just honestly, because our audience is front of mind all the time. And we're just like, mm, what are those guys going to think about this? Or does this feel right? Are we going to, you know, just disappoint our audience if we do certain things um, that are unexpected for us? So certainly the design files as a brand is quite clear to me and to the team mm. what, you know, what makes sense for us as a brand or what doesn't. I don't think of myself personally as a brand. I'm I'm like the worst mm-hmm. um personal sort of influencer. Like, you know, we've got a lot of followers on our Instagram and I don't have any, like my own personal Instagram is so crap. And I always, I think it's actually quite funny that like, I'm actually so bad at posting content to my personal channel. I've just spent 12 years sort of building this thing that is so um, densely populated uh, with content um, under the Design Files brand. But me personally, it's it, it doesn't factor in. I'm not trying to build my personal brand. and but But I do... Mm-hmm. acknowledge the value that um, that having a figurehead brings to our brand. So, you know, I think now more than ever, I think it's important for a media brand to have faces that people can trust and um, can sort of latch on to because there's a lot of sort of faceless news and media out there, you know, and I think um, that's been, a, that's really valuable for us is for people to know and trust my face and and to feel that there are real humans back here generating this stuff and the voice you hear on the design files is someone that you know and trust. And also, I guess if I was a more strategic business person, I'd look at the design files as a brand that should stand on its own and not actually have a human face connected because, you know, if I wasn't around, it should still have value. But I, that's what makes me not really a typical entrepreneur. And I don't really think of myself as an entrepreneur because I'm not very good at uh, separating myself from the brand. And also I don't think I really want to. And also mm-hmm. I don't I don't sort of imagine the brand without me and I don't want to ever, I do want to do this thing until I am not around anymore and I don't want to <laughs> sell my business and that's never been part of the strategy. So it gives me a little bit more, I guess, flexibility to um, Mm. be the face of it without having to worry that that's not a good long-term plan, you know? Has it ever been something that you've struggled with in terms of 
putting yourself out there because I think if you're putting your face to a brand, you're, you know, appearing in Mm. the imagery, you're speaking on a podcast or to camera or whatever it might be. Um, You know, I think one of the questions, one of the things that we hear a lot with women in our community is they know that they should be the the face of the brand or put themselves out there as the face of their business, but really struggle to do that. Is that something that you've ever struggled with? No, but I think it's actually because I sort of have the brand to hide behind a little bit. Mm. Like it's not Mm. just all about me. I see my um, contribution as being able to elevate this brand that I have. And I don't, I don't talk about really myself um, in our content and it's not about me, but I, uh, I come in to sort of help elevate, um, I guess the content and, and, and the other things we do. So I think maybe that's why it's easier. Cause I, I would, like, I, I actually am quite self-conscious about things like, um, like being in a photo shoot, if I have to be really glam and I don't feel that that's me or, uh, you know, when it's about me personally, like if people, I've done a few little things with, um, you know, photo shoots at home with my daughter and that sort of stuff. And that stuff I do feel self-conscious about because I, I think I do have a bit of a inferiority complex or sort of mm. like... Um, imposter impos- syndrome. Exactly. That's mm-hmm. what I... Yeah, imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. So when it's all about me, I feel a bit weird about it. But when I have something to say because I'm talking about, you know, our brand or something, um, I guess, bigger than me, then then that for me has always been okay. And, uh, and also I think actually having me as a figurehead for the brand has actually been quite, um, a powerful thing for our, uh, for us as a business, because we sort of, uh, straddle being a media organization, a publisher and having Mm. a bit of an influencer element. Mm. So we can sort of pluck budget from wherever it is, you know, if someone just wants us to do something on social media, we sort of can do that. Um, and we do have me as a figurehead to do that. Um, but, um, but we're not only that, if that makes sense. So then Lucy, would you see yourself as, um, an authoritative figure in the design world? Or is that where the imposter syndrome comes from? Like, what's the imposter syndrome about? I feel like I'm having a therapy session. <laughs> it um, always happens when you get on the sorry, with I get into my little coaching, you know. Uh. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, no, I'm not actually an authoritative figure in the design industry. And interestingly, that's, I think, what actually sets the design files apart. We're not an expert voice. I'm not a designer and I'm not an industry sort of person. Uh, and to be honest, that's, I really am comfortable with that. I'm comfortable with being a more accessible platform and talking about design and architecture in a way that most people understand that isn't just for sort of the industry talking to itself, if, if that makes sense. Cause there are a lot of really fantastic titles out there that cover architecture and design in a quite a lofty way that really only engages, you know, quite a niche audience. And we're not that. And I, I'm, I love that we're sort of a bit more democratic in our sort of approach. Uh, but it does sort of mean that I um, I think there's probably an ele- some elements of the design industry that don't take us seriously or sort of think of us as sort of a bit fluffy. And um, so maybe that's where the imposter syndrome comes in. Like if I have to go and sort of speak to a room full of architects, I'm very aware that they don't really think that I'm uh, you know, that, that we are a serious design title. Um, but you know, the proof is in the pudding. That's, that's fine with me. We've got a great business. We've got a great following and I don't really, um, you know, that's, that's fine. Uh, You know, we can't be all things to all people. Totally. It just reminds me of, um, CJ Hendry, the Mm. artist who we've interviewed a few times and, you know, she's sort of the most, do you know CJ? Yes, I do. Yes. So she's, you know, an incredible artist and she kind of sticks her finger up to the art world and she's not taken seriously by so many people. But as you said, the proof is in the pudding. And I think that's what attracts people to her. And I think also that's probably what attracts a lot of people to your brand is that it kind of, as you said, makes design accessible Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, it, it allows other people who aren't necessarily design experts to participate in the conversation. Yeah, no, totally. And I must say like the art world, um, speaking of CJ Hendry is a whole nother level of that sort of, yeah. <laughs> sort of very, there's a real establishment within that world. Uh, and certainly there's a lot of people breaking the mold. And I just don't think the established sort of voices in that world are quite, quite have got their heads around how to, how to tackle that. Mm. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> Love that. So um, you are running the Design Files Design Awards, which is very exciting, um, celebrating Australian design, creativity. I'd love to know what is out there at the moment? What are you excited by? What stories are being told? I mean, I can imagine this year is just going to be an entirely different landscape. What are you seeing? Yeah, so the Design Awards is you know, something we're really excited about. We launched it last year, so this is only the second year in. But the Design Files and Laminex Design Awards really has enabled us to, I guess, support the industry of design and creativity uh, very tangibly. And by that, I mean, you know, when we cover someone on the design files, it's it's fleeting. They have a great influx for a day and, and they feel like they're, you know, in the spotlight for a day or half a day and then it's gone and we're on to the next thing. And I think, you know, when you can say you, you won this award this year or you were highly commended by these quite, you know, respected judges, it has more weight. And I think, um, I think it's sort of, it was time for us after 10 years to sort of, I guess, put something out there that does have that, that level of importance around it. So that's why we launched it. Um, this year, it's been a challenge because <laughs> like everything, we, we've had to re- really reimagine a lot of how we've hosted the awards. So all our judging has happened remotely. Our live stream, our awards live stream will be happening remotely. So, you know, everyone can watch it online, which again, probably there are some silver linings. That means it'll reach a lot more people uh, than, a, than a physical award ceremony would. But uh, yeah, it's certainly been a bit of a brain drain trying to figure out how to deliver this thing mm-hmm. in this new way. But one of the things we are super excited about this year is um, the representation of First Nations designers in our program. So I must admit in our first year last year, we put the call out for entries and a lot of designers and people working in creative industries in Australia are white people. Mm, And that's because it's a really um, privileged type of uh, industry to be in. And I think people that choose a creative career are probably in a position where they are quite um, fortunate. And I think, um, you know, so, so that was a learning for us the first year. We had a really fantastic um, program, but the diversity probably wasn't where it should have been. And this year we, um, we reached out to some contacts um, from different um, First Nations groups and communities and we really proactively pushed for entries from, from people that probably weren't even aware of our program last year. So we really made sure that we were finding people and organisations that, um, that would enter so that we could ensure that the representation was, was there and uh, we still would love to improve on it. But this year we've got a huge number of um, projects by First Nations makers and designers and a lot of collaborations where uh, big companies have worked with First Nations designers to produce incredible work in architecture, in lighting design, in textile design. So um, that's been fantastic to see this year and we really just want to grow on that uh, into the future. So, um, yeah, we'd really love to encourage everyone to watch the live stream of our Design Awards ceremony so you can see all our shortlisted entrants and all our winners and that's happening on November the 5th at 7pm and you can register at tdfdesignawards.com. Amazing. We'll be there. Beautiful. Beautiful. We will. We will. Okay, so we've got a couple of wrap-up questions. So as a business owner, we all experience those moments of self-doubt. We question what we're doing, why we're doing it, how the hell we're going to keep going, especially this year. How have you been able to rally yourself um, during these tough times? What, what works for you? Yes, I probably experienced more self-doubt this year than I have in any previous year of running my business. For me, it's all about being so confident in the numbers and facing them head on. So there have been times in my business where I'm just being creative and I'm not really that across the cash flow and I'm just sort of uh, a bit loose and I, and I go through ups and downs of being super loose with that stuff and then really drilling down and getting a lot more tight on, on the numbers. But uh, this year it's been about every second day being in my cash flow spreadsheets, looking at, you know, that really boring stuff that you need to be across as a, as a business owner and, and also really stepping up and being across it yourself, not sort of leaving it to your bookkeeper or your accountant and hoping someone gives you a red flag if it's looking a bit dire. I think as a business owner and certainly one like me that doesn't have a partner, a business partner, I need to know the numbers. I need to know right now what what 
what's in the bank, what's coming in next week. And I, I just feel that it's every business owner's responsibility to actually be across that, no matter what size your team, no matter who you've got helping you out with that stuff. I think as a business owner, um, for me anyway, it's about really facing that stuff that's um, probably not my strength and not my passion, but it's still really um, something I need to be uh, feel responsible for and be across. So yeah, that's sort of a boring answer to that question, but uh, yeah, it's certainly been about um, facing that scary stuff head on. Yeah, which actually brings confidence in the end. But mm. it's but it's not. It's a bit scary to sort of um, to be that across the numbers sometimes. Great advice. Yeah, definitely. Mm. You spoke a little bit earlier about. Um, you know, the fact that you aren't looking to sell this brand, it's sort of integral to who you are. I'm curious, what is your sort of longer-term vision for the business? Where do you want to take it and what's your kind of ultimate end goal? It's a good question. That has changed over the years, to be honest. So, you know, probably five years ago, I probably could see the business growing to a bigger size and potentially employing um, many more people and having, you know, maybe an office in Sydney and that sort of thing. So over time, I've sort of entertained those ideas and sort of thought about them and and sort of gone down the path of sort of doing some metrics around them and then sort of pulled back actually. And I've always been very cautious about that sort of decision-making because the design files is a bootstrapped business, as they say in America, which, you know, essentially (laughs) means that it was started um, by me with just my cash in the bank and I've never taken investment or, or a loan and I don't have um, a backer. So that means that I'm really conscious of always being cash positive and of not over committing myself financially because I don't want to um, be in a situation where uh, I've sort of got to relinquish control. <laughs> That's yeah. a common theme yeah. that we're talking yeah. about today. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so... Um, So in fact, what I've realized, and certainly this year has solidified for me is all of those years of being a bit cautious about that growth has actually probably been a good thing uh, because, uh, you know, now this year, I'm certainly feeling the benefit of having a small business and Mm. pretty manageable overhead. You know, if you'd asked me that question last year, I probably would have said, oh, I need a few more staff and I might open an office in Sydney. (laughs) But this year I'm like, no, we're fine. (laughs) And it's really, you know, and I think for a lot of businesses, it will be about maintenance and uh, sort of um, and getting back to where we were rather than, you know, looking to grow um, extensively. And I'm happy to grow slowly. You know, I just think there's so many examples of great Australian businesses that have really grown such a strong business and it hasn't, hasn't been fast. You know, you guys have spoken to Joe Horgan from Mecca, who I really admire. Um, you know, there's other businesses like, um, Carmen's Muesli and those sort of businesses that are such great businesses. And that's like a 10 plus year journey for those businesses. And uh, I just think that's where you really have longevity when you're happy to just go slow and not be pushed to grow (laughs) too fast. And I must say that is why I don't seek out investment because I don't want someone breathing down my neck about the pace of what we're doing, Mm. you know? So for me, slow and steady is, is, is definitely um, the best approach. Wins the race. (laughs) Yeah. Slow and steady. Yeah. Love that. We, um, we're just running uh, the Brains Trust mentor program at the moment and we have a bunch of women in there that we support and, you know, they support one another and it's it's um, so nice to see what we get them to do at the beginning is to ask themselves a question that they want to have answered by the end of the 10 weeks um, and that kind of guides them through the journey. Is there a question that you are asking yourself right now that you are looking for the answer to? Yes, there are a few. <laughs> I mean, you can have more than one. Um, The ongoing question for me in my business, and I still um, am unsure of it, is uh, shifting our model a bit to see if there's a way that we can um, generate some uh, small portion of income from our audience. So I think basically publishing, even before COVID hit, publishing has been on a downward decline, whether you're an online publisher or a print publisher for many years now. And the best titles, um, particularly overseas uh, in America, 
I think are buoyant if they have a some sort of subscriber base or or another sort of way that whether it be a club or something where their most um, I guess passionate followers do pay a small amount to access something. And for me, I've always been very nervous about doing that because I feel like again it's about accessibility. I want everyone to see what we put out there, and I don't want to sort of have any element of what we do. I guess, behind a paywall or off limits. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I think over the last two years or so, I've certainly started to realise that the model isn't sustainable uh, if I don't um, develop something of that nature. So I'm nervous about doing that, but I think that's a question that I need to answer in the next 12 months. Mm, Great question. (laughs) Really good question. (laughs) We'll have to get you back on and see if you've figured it out. (laughs) Yes, I'll give you an update. Yeah, Yeah. keep us updated. Okay, and our final question, this is one thing that we ask everybody at the end of every chat. What is one thing that you need right now? Well, I don't want to end on a COVID note again. Yeah. (laughs) But I must say later this month I'm turning 40. Happy birthday. That's a huge one. Thank you. And, uh, yeah, I must say it's not going to be much of a party uh, due to current circumstances. So I just think I need a party some sort of celebration of any description. So whether it happens now or is slightly delayed, I'm just looking forward to celebrating. um, Yeah. Once we're, once we're um, through the worst of this time. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, oh, we'll we'll be there. We'll bring the, we'll bring the champagne. Don't yeah. worry. Yeah. We all need a party right now. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Something to look yeah. forward to. I think. Yeah. Definitely. For sure. Well, thank thanks, you so much. Lucy. That was great. That was an awesome chat. <laughs> well, thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much, Lucy. As a content-led business, we took so much out of this chat. Firstly, there is a really, really fine balance between being creative and commercial. And as brands, we have to produce creative, exciting products, campaigns, content, but we also have to make cash. The balance can be a really tricky one to strike. And at Ladybrains, we are constantly challenging every decision, asking ourselves, is this our best creative idea? And if so, will it make us money? Secondly, we really loved Lucy's philosophy that slow and steady wins the race. We've interviewed so many founders with big visions who've built really strong brands over time. People like Joe Horgan from Mecca, Kate from Adore Beauty, Erica from Fluff. It can be really tempting to chase the quick win, but we found that zooming out to focus on our long-term goals really helps provide us with perspective and reminds us that good things take time. And lastly, building your personal brand alongside your business is really important and there are many ways to do it. Figuring out a way that feels authentic to you is key. We really hope you enjoyed this chat. For more podcast action, follow us on Instagram at lady.brains or sign up for our monthly newsletter at ladybrains.com. Ciao. Lady Brains is hosted by Anna McKenzie and Caitlin Judd. The producer is Brooke Carrigan. Audio production by Matt Nikolic.